tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we're at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 25 for January of 2018. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave. And in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about foreign shows that were imported or rebooted in the U.S. And our show topics include a look at season one of the German import Dark on Netflix and our thoughts about season two of Travelers, a Canadian import also on Netflix. That's right. So our discussion topic ties directly into our show topics since they are both imports and both from Netflix, as we'll find out. Netflix is a big importer. They're on the forefront of some of this uh, cutting edge sci-fi from other countries. And we're also going to share with you our interview with William B. Davis. We've been waiting a while for this one. And unfortunately, the timing didn't line up too well with the X-Files premiere, but I think it'll still be very exciting for those who did watch the premiere, which for us, when we're recording here, it was last night. But we didn't get to go too far into spoiler territory with him because we hadn't seen the episode yet. But we're very excited to share that interview with you today. And I want to mention before we start that we do have some spoilers in our segments because Dark and Travelers have already dropped in their entirety as Netflix is wont to do. And we're going to be talking about the whole thing. So those are spoilerific. Uh, the X-Files interview is, of course, not spoilery, even for the premiere. So if you need to avoid certain topics or spoilers for the two show topics, here are the time codes for today's discussions. U.S. Imports and Reboots 210 Dark 1630 Travelers 3535 The X-Files 5628 All right, Dave, this is a discussion topic that really suggested itself from our show topics, and it actually gleaned quite a few very interesting shows, some of which we didn't know about until we started doing our research. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we watched the shows, we were certainly aware of them, but we didn't necessarily know their history in, in terms of broadcasting. Right. And I want to thank our listeners for contributing to the discussion. In fact, they influenced my choices because there are quite a few foreign imports into the U.S. rebooted or just imported as is that have aired. But I wanted to pick the best ones, the ones that I would recommend our listeners actually check out. So we'll go right into our list here with something that's also fairly fresh in terms of season four having just aired at the end of December. And that's Black Mirror, a British show which started out on Channel 4 and was picked up by Netflix to continue for seasons three and four in 2015. And it's been a different flavor a little bit for seasons three and four, but they've really pumped out some very interesting episodes as an anthology series. But have you gotten a chance to check out season four yet, Dave? I have not. And I was just saying to my wife last night, the thing that I love about Black Mirror is that it is a collection of self-contained stories so that you don't have to watch an entire season. So we've seen about two episodes from each of the first three seasons. Oh, really? <laughs> and certainly want to get back and, and see the rest, but just haven't been able to do that yet because, you know, not a sci-fi import, but we're in the middle of Downton Abbey. <laughs> okay. That's an import though. And uh, yeah, so Black Mirror has really garnered a lot of attention on the Den of Geek site. In fact, we're talking about doing a Black Mirror Rewind, where we review some of the older episodes in retrospect and, and kind of spread that out amongst some of the writers. So looking forward to that. But yeah, Black Mirror has been on its game, I think, season four, 
some uh, very brutal episodes, but at the same time, some some really good warnings against technology's role in our lives, which I think is a really great satirical sci-fi. Oh, no question. So, all right. Now, the first one I'm going to talk about is one that has been rebooted in the U.S., and it's Being Human, which supernatural comedy drama that first aired on BBC Three in 2008 and ran for five seasons ending in 2013. Now, the U.S. version didn't begin until 2011 and and also ran for four seasons. And I think if you explain the show to somebody that it's about a ghost, a vampire, and a werewolf that share a flat, (laughs) they're going to kind of look at you askew for a moment. Yeah. But it doesn't take long to realize what a deep show it is and certainly what a heartbreaking show it is as you, you watch these three characters who are really just trying to be human and just integrate and they have the same problems that you and I have. And it's just really a wonderful show. I mean, it's, it's really about their struggle. And I think this is one of the few instances where the U.S. rebooted a successful series and had it be successful also. So right. being human is something you can enjoy the, the British version separately from the U.S. version and enjoy them both equally. Absolutely. And no matter which cast you look at, I mean, they're all three really strong. So, again, I don't know if somebody asked me, well, which what should I watch first? Ordinarily, we might say, oh, watch the British one first. That's the original. But I don't know. They're both so good. Exactly. And uh, one show that didn't work out so well. And in fact, there's a few that I'll mention after our list here that I took off the list just because the American reboot wasn't so great. But one uh, that is worth seeing in its original form is going way in the vault. Dave, you and I talked about The Prisoner. I think we were talking about dystopias or some topic on a previous podcast where you brought up The Prisoner. And this is a great series that's kind of a mixture between a spy versus spy thriller and a dystopic sci-fi show. It aired in 1967, like I said, in Canada and the UK, but then it began in the US as an import in the summer of 68. And basically there were 17 episodes that followed a former secret agent that's abducted and wakes up in a mysterious village where everyone has numbers and just keep in mind this time in history, you know, 1960s, the the idea of identity, individualism, things like that were at the forefront. And the main character who goes by number six fights against number two and the establishment of, of you know, various incarnations of number two because the, the role is taken over by different members of the community. And he eventually starts to win people over from this community of all different walks of life, all different nationalities and so on. So it was pretty cutting edge for its time, very philosophical, existential. And the AMC tried to reboot it as a miniseries in 2009. And I guess it didn't do so well, but the original is still kind of timeless. I mean, it it certainly is is of its age, but it also is kind of just weird and fun in a, in a way. Well, I agree. And I think anytime you recommend a show that that was produced in the 60s or even the 70s, for that matter, production values becomes an issue. And and I understand that, you know, the current generation of teenagers, 20s to go back and look at the original Star Trek and you kind of see that look where they're not quite buying it visually. But I think the production values of The Prisoner, while certainly a product of the 60s, there's a certain visual appeal to it that really is something to behold. And I, I think if you do nothing more than watch the first episode, yeah. it's really worth your time. Yeah. 
But I have to give credit before I forget to Michael Keller for getting this one on my list. I remembered us talking about it before. And as soon as he put that on there, I uh, took life on Mars off and put the prisoner on. And I'll explain that at the end of our discussion, (laughs) why I did that. All right. Well, I'm going to talk about a show that certainly was brought to my attention by Kevin Batchelder, and that is Charlie Jade. Yeah. And in fact, we've talked about that a few times in different contexts on this podcast. Yeah. And it was a Canadian South African co-production, one 20 episode season, and it first aired on Space in Canada in 2005. And the cool thing about this show is that it's one of the few that really explores the multiverse theory of parallel universes. I mean, certainly we had a little bit of it in Fringe, and there are other shows that, that explore it a little bit. But but Charlie Jade, that's what it was all about, that we're following this detective named Charlie Jade who gets trapped in a universe that's not his own. And He's in the dystopian alphaverse, and we also learn there's a betaverse and a gammaverse. Parallel Earths, right? Right, and that there is movement between them for some, and surprise, surprise, these big corporations are at the center of of a lot of what's going on because there's a plot to take water from one verse and move it to the other one that's coping with environmental issues. So it later aired in the U.S. on Sci-Fi, and visually, it's just a different look, a different appeal, and it's really interesting. I, I really liked it a lot. I, I won't say I was surprised, because once I found out you know, that it was the uh, Parallel Universe storyline, that's certainly something that appeals to me. Yeah, and it's kind of hard-boiled, in a way, to the detective story. But I've got new, good news for you, Dave. Next month in February, we're covering a parallel universe show called Counterpart. So <laughs> you'll get your uh, flavor for that once those episodes become available for us to watch. So. <laughs> I will indeed. As it's, I looked that up today. We still got a few weeks to go on, on that. Yep. And my next show, my third show that I want to bring up is also courtesy of one of our listeners. Now, she didn't bring it up as part of our discussion. She just brought it up on Facebook just out of nowhere. And I'm like, Oh, that'd be perfect for our discussion. So kudos to Bonita Butler for bringing my attention to glitch, which is a Netflix import again, Netflix really on the ball here (laughs) imported from Australia. There are two seasons of six episodes each. So definitely bingeable. Uh, they were two years apart. So 2015 was season one, 2017. In fact, it just finished in November, I believe was season two. And in this show, six people, show up in a cemetery, naked, dirty, disheveled, and completely disoriented. They remember only their first names, and they've basically risen from the dead, but not necessarily dead at the same time. Some of them are from longer ago. Some of them are from the present. Why did they awaken? Who are they? Uh, They eventually start to remember some things, but different things at different times about themselves, and they investigate who they are, why they're there. And as the seasons progress... It seems like there are some scientific explanations for it in terms of investigations into cellular regeneration that were being conducted, medical experiments, but also some very mystical things that remind me a little of Winona Earp, where the border around town is as far as these people can go without disintegrating. And the border starts to shrink as we go into season two for this show. So this is called Glitch, and it's definitely something that seems worth checking out. I wasn't able to to go too deep into it with my own viewing, but it definitely qualifies as 
something worth checking out that's been imported from outside the U.S. So if you like supernatural type scenarios, there you go. So, All right. And my third and the final show of this segment is Lost Girl, a relatively popular show that really was my first introduction to Showcase Network in Canada because it debuted there in 2010, ran for five seasons, eventually premiered in the U.S. on Sci-Fi in 2012. This show is certainly supernatural fantasy. It follows a succubus named Bo, who's on a true hero's journey of self-discovery, search for identity, because she has always thought she was human. And once she gets past puberty, certain things about her powers start coming out. And she learns about this entire underground community of fae, which obviously comes from fairies. And she is part of this community of you know all, all sorts of different supernatural creatures. And it was a really good show that some people would tell you by the time it got to season five – it started losing its focus and and that may be true, but I, I think the characters were all compelling enough that it's certainly a show that's worthwhile. We've certainly got a number of shows that have strong female protagonists. And in this show, we have more than just one, which, which is nice. And, you know, we have the, the human fey conflicts, the human fey connections, and it really is a nice show. Yeah, but since a lot of these shows have already finished their run, they're definitely bingeable in their current form. I think uh, Black Mirror, I'm not sure what whether it will go to season five. I imagine it will. And Glitch, it's season three, Fate is still unknown, but we'll see. But the rest of them are already in the books, <laughs> so you can check them out. Now, there are some other obvious choices that maybe if people are thinking, how did they not mention these? But fortunately, our listeners did. And the first, of course, people familiar with our podcasting career... Fortunately, on Twitter, Lawrence Scott did bring up Continuum as kind of a companion to Lost Girl. And funnily enough, Lawrence tweeted that answer to our tweet. And then Rachel Nichols tweeted back and replied to him and said, I concur. So she also concurs that Continuum is a good import to the U.S. Allie chimed in on Twitter. Also, she mentioned Farscape, which technically isn't an import. It was filmed in New Zealand, but it actually was a co-production of sci-fi and a, a network out there. And then on Facebook, Linda brought up, Linda's a wealth of information, I have to say. <laughs> I think we would be friends in real life. Humans, she mentioned, although again, I think that's a British import of a Swedish show, but it did get imported by AMC, so I guess that counts. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then she brought up Lex, too, which I had to look up. That looks very interesting, kind of campy looking, but kind of an older show that was imported as well. And then also mentioned Xena and Hercules. Oh, wait, Xena and Hercules might be the New Zealand one. I might be mischaracterizing Farscape. That might be Australia. Uh, and then Michael Keller mentioned The Prisoner, as I said, and I have to give him credit for getting that on our list. Kevin Batchelder brought up Being Human, which obviously was one of the ones Dave discussed. And of course, Fred brought up Doctor Who, which obviously is a great British import, but I figured it was almost a little bit too obvious to bring up <laughs> in our discussion. On Sci-Fi Fidelity, we like to go with the unsung heroes. And of course... We might have also mentioned Clever Man, which was an imported from Australia to Sundance TV. And Life on Mars got dropped off, like I said, just because the American reboot just wasn't that good. I loved Life on Mars, the British version, but I don't believe it was imported. 
at any point. They just rebooted it unsuccessfully, in my opinion. So lots of good imports out there, and I'm sure there are many more to come, especially since Dark has been very well received as a German import that we're about to talk about, as has Travelers from Canada. So I hope this is a trend that will continue. Right, Dave? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. So lots of good sci-fi from more than just America. But let's go ahead and go into our first show topic, and this one's a doozy. Dark on Netflix discovered it almost by accident. I, I was just looking around, and I'm like looking for show topics, basically, and I spotted this one, and I'm like, this might work. Well, then when I got farther into it, I was just amazed at how good and complex the time travel is in this show. And this is coming from someone who has podcasted for Continuum and 12 Monkeys, and those are complex enough. I think if I were trying to podcast Dark, I would literally melt my brain. <laughs> well, yeah. And the other interesting thing about Dark, I think one of the first things you have to figure out how you're going to watch it because you've got the options. For instance, I watched it with the English dubbing. Uh-huh. And I watched it with the subtitles. And the German audio. Right. Right. And Netflix, you've got all different options available to you. So that's certainly one of the things you you have to consider. I I don't know that one's better than the other. Yeah, I just go with subtitles only because then you get the original acting and I'm not sure the acting ability of the voiceover (laughs) folks. So that's the reason I do that. But yeah, it's definitely something you can pick your option. And this is a German production that was done by Netflix. I'm not sure if it totally qualifies as an import because I do think Netflix financed it from the very start. It's 10 episodes. It's only got one season so far. And it was compared, I think somewhat unfairly by some critics to stranger things because of there's, there's an element that takes place in the 1980s, which I don't think is, is really a big part of it. I think some of these critics may have only seen the premiere and this show does take a little, time to get really started. It's got some really great enticing elements in the premiere, but by episode three, I, I defy anyone not to be hooked. And we've already got news that it's been renewed for season two. So let me start off with some non-spoilery type things to discuss in case you feel like getting hooked on this show. And then we'll go into the spoilers. The setup for this show is that there's a man that leaves a note. He's just about ready to commit suicide. And the envelope says, don't open before November 9th, 10 13 p.m. So already you're thinking, okay, something's going on here with time. Like, how would he know that that particular minute is important? And we see the aftermath of what he does there at the beginning through the eyes of Jonas, or Jonas, as I guess they say in German, who's traumatized by his father's death. And this picks up kind of a year later where he's been away from school for a time and his friend has covered for him by saying he's been in France this whole time recuperating. But uh, he kind of rediscovers what's been going on in the town along with the audience. And one of the big news items in town, and the town is named Winden in Germany, is that a boy named Eric has been missing for two weeks and there are no leads in the case. People are starting to get a little desperate. And a group of kids, as kids do, you know, they're kind of dealing within their own way and kind of being opportunistic. <laughs> they decide to get together and score Eric's drug stash. Eric was a drug dealer at the school. So these, this group of kids gets together, goes to the cave where he kept his drugs and mysterious things happen near the cave. Lights flash, uh, birds fall from the sky, all kinds of crazy stuff. 
And one of the young kids who actually just was tagging along because they had no one to watch him with the teenagers disappears. His name is Mickle. And this makes things even more frantic because, of course, Eric was already missing and now Mickle's gone. But what really makes this show complex is that it's got this multi-generational set of families, not just these teenage kids, but their parents. We've got the Conwalds, the Nielsens, the Dopplers, and the Tiedemans. And all of them are intertwined. It kind of reminds me, Dave, of um, 100 Years of Solitude, where we get to see different generations of the same families. And there's a lot of entanglements that we won't go into in this podcast. But just as an idea, we've got one of the parents is the principal of the school. Her husband is a detective. They're parents of three of the kids that went to the cave, including the missing Mikkel. And Jonas's mother is having an affair with the detective and different entanglements happen that way, even across the different time periods that we explore. So there's a lot to get into with relationships, but we're going to focus in on this time travel story here. And in the mix somehow is this nuclear power plant, which really drives the economy of this town, but it's scheduled to be decommissioned in 2020. And this show takes place in 2019 for some reason, (laughs) not exactly sure why they decided to go a couple years in the future, but there it is. So is this nuclear power plant involved somehow is the question you have right from the very start. And at the very end of the premiere, after Mikkel disappears, a body is found with a Walkman and eighties clothing. And that's when you just start to realize what are we dealing with, with this show? (laughs) It just seems like a really intriguing story has been set up in that initial episode. Yeah, and I think the fact that the nuclear power plant may or may not be a factor in what's going on here is one of the reasons that critics have tied it to Stranger Things because of the scientific things that are taking place in that show that that lead to, of course, uh, you know, what happens in Stranger Things, just in case you're one of the half dozen people in the world that hasn't seen it yet. (laughs) Yeah, the government involvement, in other words, yeah. Right. But this is really time travel at its best. And so if you're wanting to check out the show, you might want to stop here if you haven't already to avoid spoilers, because we're going to get into some of the crazy time loops and and things that that I really enjoyed about this show. First of all, there seems to be this 33-year cycle that is attributed to when the cycles of the moon and the sun realign. Uh, So there's a little bit of philosophy and mysticism involved. But there's also this author who gives us a lot of the exposition but not at the beginning, like throughout the series, this author named Tanhouse, who's also a clockmaker, talks about 33, shows up everywhere in history. The 33 Jesus miracles, 33 litanies of the angels, Dante's 33 purgatory cantos, and so on. And this then explains why in the show, it seems to be that time travel is only possible between 2019, 1986, 33 years prior, and 1953, 33 years prior to that. And then at the very end of the series, presumably it might even be wider than we think as we see a future, and I'm guessing it's 2042, 33 years after the present day in the show. So are there other cycles that go beyond that? Are there ripples emerging from 1986 that go back into the past and into the future? That's, I think, one of the things I'm wondering about with that number 33. Yeah, it would actually be 2052, right? Is that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> My math is terrible. <laughs> right. And, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the discussion, and, and you probably remember the message I sent you after watching the first episode, 
and my reluctance for us having chosen this show and you just said nope stick with it which <laughs> i did and, and really by the by the middle of the second episode i was hooked so you got to get past the first one yeah exactly and it's just so great because there's these little tells they don't lay it all out for you right at the front you know you have to discover it over time and i i always say give any series three episodes but this one really gets going by the third episode with the time travel and you start to see things like the fact that Innes, this woman who has the letter that Mikkel left after his suicide, she she trusts the importance that it cannot be opened until that exact time, which happens to coincide with the disappearance of Mikkel. So we also see the clockmaker early on shown working on something that looks very much like a steampunk clock or a machine of some kind, which becomes important throughout the series. You see mention of Ulrich's brother, the police detective, had also gone missing 33 years prior, very similar to the way Eric had. And you also see this crazy old man muttering something about it's happening again. So very early on, you start to get hints that something's going on. And then as it all unfolds, you start to discover all these causal loops. And I'm a big fan of causal loops. This is where the future people learn something and then they go back to try and change it and end up causing the very thing that they were trying to avoid. And that happened a lot in season one of 12 monkeys. Part of me is uh, regretful that they went away from that, but season one here of dark has really held on to that idea of inevitability. You can't change things. Okay. But one of the things that, that again, look, anytime I run across something, time travel, somebody has a question. I always think, all right, I better ask Michael. He'll he'll know <laughs> the answer to this because, as you said, we have these portals between 2019, 1986, and 1953, and as you said, presumably 2052 now. But you can't travel anytime you want. Is that right? Yeah, you can't just go to any single place. I think my main question is whether time progresses at the same rate in each of the different time periods. But yeah, you can't just choose wherever you want to go. It just drops you wherever it wants you to go, I think. Right. But I guess my question is, the portals aren't always open. Well, are they? Well, that's what the 33-year cycle I thought was about. Oh, you can't. In other words, they wouldn't have been able to travel, say, in 2007. Exactly. They wouldn't be able to just go somewhere. Yeah, that's probably true, too. But let's talk about some of these loops that are so fun. Because one of the things that the author of the... um, a journey through time, the clockmaker mentions, is time loops have a significant impact on causality. As he says, as long as a wormhole exists, there is a closed time loop, and inside it, everything is mutually dependent. He, so he's basically saying the future can influence the past, not just vice versa. So we've got Mikkel, who's traveled through the past uh, to 1986, and he doesn't know how to get back. He's kind of trapped there goes to his house and even meets his parents who are dating at the time as teenagers, Ulrich and Katerina. So he actually ends up in the hospital just because there's no place else for him to go and gets sort of adopted by nurse Innes, who we should have realized she's got this distinctive mole. And I almost wonder if that gave away the reveal that we find out later that she ends up being his adoptive mother and, the um, family ties sort of rearrange themselves into a kind of a very strange one for one of the main characters, Jonas. And speaking of Jonas, he, when he discovers the truth 
that his father is Mickle. His father, of course, went by Michael. But he confronts his grandmother, Innes, in this great scene where he says, now I have another grandma and she's principal of my school. Her husband, who's fucking my mom, is looking for his son, who's my father. And a few days ago, I kissed my aunt, who is a girl that he liked at school. So (laughs) it can get really complicated when you send someone into the past and then they become your father. (laughs) Right. But as you look at the situation and, and one of the difficult things with this show is keeping everybody straight because yeah, yeah. you have the same set of characters in two different time periods and in some cases, three different time periods. And you almost need one of those big white murder boards like Castle has yeah. <laughs> where you've got everybody's pictures and names because it really does become difficult to keep track. And there is a board like that, apparently, in the future that Jonas shows up in at the very end of the season finale. So Jonas actually is appearing early on as a stranger that we have no idea who he is. And I guess there were some guesses as to who he might be. You might have been able to guess that it was Jonas himself as a older man. But what was weird is that Jonas creates his own mission by giving himself the map, which starts him on the journey as to discovering who his father is. And then he even sees himself in the bunker trapped, but can't change anything because he needs to have it play out so that he can come back and supposedly destroy the time corridor in 1986. So I think it's very interesting that he is trying to destroy the time machine and he's the one that creates it by trying to destroy it. That's one of my favorite time loops. (laughs) And now I I read it. About something called the bootstrap paradox. Are you familiar with that? That's exactly what this is. <laughs> okay, that's what that's what I thought. Well, even an even better example of the bootstrap paradox, though, is the fact that the time machine invents itself. The little clockwork one that Tanhouse has. He's got this visitor, the stranger, who has an older version of the time machine, all tarnished because it's made of shiny metal and everything. And he actually makes improvements to his own model by looking at the older version of it. So it never would have worked had he not been able to see what it would become. I love that kind of stuff. (laughs) But a big part of the story is, of course, not all these time loops, but the fact that Ulrich is missing his son. He also lost his brother early on. Maybe that's probably why he pursues it so doggedly. Ends up going into the past to try and get rid of Helga, who he thinks is a serial killer. And there's a lot of deception, even for the audience, as to who's taking these kids and burning out their eye sockets because it doesn't seem to have anything to do with what the cave time travel is doing. And that whole plot line has yet to play out fully, but this brings up a lot of questions that we have for season two, because they left a lot of things hanging, a lot of enticing threads hanging, not frustrating threads. And one of them is the mysterious figure of Noah, who's dressed like a priest He looks the same no matter what time period he appears in. Am I right about that, Dave? Yeah. Yeah. As far as I can tell. We don't know when he originates from. He's doing something with Bartosh at some point, the guy who ended up with the drugs from Eric's stash. And he tells them in 2019, there's apparently an eternal war between good and evil with two groups fighting to control time travel. Sound familiar, uh, freelancers in Continuum? (laughs) Uh, Yes, it does. (laughs) And so they have this light versus shadow and that Noah says he belongs to the light. But do we believe him? Because if that, if that's so, it seems like Claudia, who was the head of the nuclear power plant at one point, 
shows up, she kind of disappears from the scene altogether and reappears as this white haired lady who seems to be totally in the know as to what's going on. And she seems to be Noah's counterpart in some ways. So definitely a big question with that, especially since Noah also seems to be interested in Mickle in 1986, where they talk about religion and Mickle's just not buying it. So what is Noah's agenda? No idea. Yeah, I don't either. And I, I just wonder because there do seem to be these religious overtones or undertones. Yeah. There's mysticism. There's, science there's philosophy all kinds of different things interwoven and you've got helga wrapped into noah's plans as well especially in the 80s seems like they're trying to send people through time with this weird chair thing but is this some early prototype are they trying to harness the power of what happened by mistake with the clockmaker's machine like what happens first the chicken or the egg i mean you can't really tell and in fact, the whole method of time travel of going through the cave tunnels is mysterious too, because there are these doors, metal doors engraved with the words sic mundus creatus est, the world is created. And who put those there, <laughs> you know, because the tunnel that they go through, it seems like they were carved or man-made to a certain extent, as opposed to the jagged tunnels of the cave. So what's going on with there and all the different characters who come and go have mysterious pieces to them as well. You've got Alexander Conwald who came into town in 1986 to get a job at the plant. And he eventually does take over. Claudia gives him a job, uh, an entry level job in the eighties and he's director by the time 2019 rolls around, but he came into town with some false identity and multiple passports. And I'm not sure what's going on with that. And one of the most mysterious ones I thought of happened so briefly in the fifties that I almost forgot about it. And that's Agnes, a woman named Agnes who comes to town in a sultry red dress, goes to a boarding house. She's talking about having been married to a priest for 15 years. So I'm wondering if there's a Noah connection with her as well, but just the fact that it's mentioned so offhandedly in season one is like, wow, we're supposed to remember that for when season two rolls around. <laughs> there's a lot of different things like that. I know. So, you know, the event in 1986 that Jonas enacted with his machine allows him to escape the bunker through this portal that opens up where he kind of touches fingers with the young Helga as a child. And that's how he ends up in 2052. So there's a whole nother future that we can explore in season two, I imagine, with Jonas figuring out some post-apocalyptic type scenario, but also perhaps dealing with a future where they know about time travel. Who knows? Right. And I don't think anybody was surprised at the visual of 2052. I, I think we all <laughs> expected it was going to be that sort of a society. Yeah, they're supposed to shut down the nuclear power plant in 2020, but the power plant is destroyed and exploded, it looks like, in this apocalyptic future. So a lot of different things going on, but what a great show. It's, it's so complex. It's very deep. It's very literary. And if you like uh, brain melting time travel, I highly, highly recommend it. It's up there right with continuum and 12 monkeys. So, all right. Well, for our second show, it may not melt your mind quite as much as dark did, but travelers on showcase Canada. And then of course, Netflix us is a show that, takes time travel from a different perspective because what we've got and obviously we're talking about season two here but 
just to give any new listeners a quick overview, we've got travelers from a bleak future where the human race has all but died out. Uh, apparently, there's some sort of an environmental catastrophe that's led to an ice age. But what they sent to the past is their consciousness rather than their entire body. So they send the consciousness to the 21st century to inhabit the bodies of people that are about to historically die. So from a moral and ethical standpoint, that's their justification for taking over that person's body, which, well, they were going to die anyway. And certainly one of the things that you have to consider with this show is the moral and ethical implications of doing that because they approach it as if yeah, no big deal. Exactly. And I didn't think of it. We were talking about how this all, is all tied together with the foreign import idea. But yeah, the fact that we just talked about two time travel shows, which we're huge fans of anyway, there are no series of the many out there, Timeless and all the other time travel shows that have popped up. Nothing does it like Travelers with the consciousness. I think that's a really unique concept. Right. And what adds to that concept is the fact that these consciousness are sent into a body and that they assume that person's life. So it opens up a whole other set of issues. So one of the things we like to do when we do a show that's in its second or subsequent season is what's new this season. Especially with a show like this where we actually talked about season one in an earlier podcast. So check that earlier podcast out if you want to catch up on season one. Right. So we've got the introduction of Vincent, played by Enrico Colantoni, who you may know from Veronica Mars. He was her father, the private investigator, Keith Mars. And he is the first traveler. He was sent to the 21st century as a proof of concept to see if the technology would actually work. And we see his arrival on 9-11. To Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 2001, and he is in one of the Twin Towers. Things don't go as planned in that he is supposed to die in one of the Trade Center buildings. And he knows that. Yeah. Does he decide from the very start that he's not going to follow the director's plan or what? <laughs> well, I think once he gets into the situation, he realizes what he's really gotten himself into. And he decides that I'm going to get out of the building on time. And then he spends the next 16 years of his life hiding from the director, who is this omniscient AI in the future who is orchestrating the Traveler's program. And he 
believes that the director is seeking him out to have him killed. And obviously there's a certain irony in that the first traveler circumvents what we've come to know as the grand plan. From the very start. From the very start. Well, what I think is strange with the first traveler too, and I don't know if we knew this in season one, maybe you can tell me if we did. This means that 9-11-2001 is as far back as any traveler can go because each of the next travelers can only come back as recently as the previous traveler arrived. So the timeline keeps moving forward farther and farther as to when new arrivals can come. So is that correct? I mean, that is correct. So I don't know if we knew that in season one. So we also have the quantum frame and, and we have more of a reference for it and it's still in play. It's this huge machine that was built at the end of season one, but now it's in the hands of the faction which is a group in the future that is trying to bring down the director. So we've got the director who's orchestrating the grand plan, which at its heart is to save humanity. Not unlike any other time travel show, 12 Monkeys, Terminator, you know, we've got a a bleak future. Let's go back and, and change something so we don't destroy ourselves. We don't do whatever leads to this ice age in travelers and season two brings up the idea like you said in terminator do we trust the machines (laughs) or don't we right and brad wright has said that should they get a season three and it looks like they will that's going to be something he is going to explore in season three but we also learned that you know in the future the faction is trying to shut down the director and they actually succeed in doing that. And then part of season two revolves around you know, finding some sort of a power source to bring the director back online, which they are able to do for all of three seconds. And in that three <laughs> seconds, the director does everything, including curing cancer. Well, I- <laughs> well, that's what I love about Travelers. It's one of the only time travel shows that allows for the fact that a bunch of time has passed. There's time to understand things in the future because they've already happened in the past. So yeah, as soon as that power source becomes available historically, all the changes can happen. Even if it took years in the future to accomplish, the results are seen in the past immediately. I love that kind of stuff because it doesn't have the whole idea of the time passes the same in the future as it does in the past. Well, right. And there's also the idea If you think about computers in general and the most powerful computers we have in 2018, well, what kind of power are they going to have in 400 years? Right. So I I know there was some criticism that, oh, that's a lot to accomplish in three seconds. Well, you know, maybe, maybe not when you try to think about it. For a computer, not so much. (laughs) Right. Now, we also have a storyline in season two where the faction – has instigated a mission to reduce the world's population with a deadly virus that would kill 30% worldwide. And it's one of those things that, how dare you, but this group looks at it as if they're willing to make the tough call to save the human race. Well, because overpopulation caused most of the problems that the future is experiencing. So let's take drastic measures. I I don't know. Are you on team director? I kind of am. I'm like, we need the impartiality of a computer, not to mention the quick thinking, 
in order to take out emotional decisions like that, because obviously we're supposed to root for McLaren and his team, but I kind of would rather have my fate in the hands of a supercomputer in this case than a, a faction that's making their own decisions that seem to be very harsh, but completely human so that they can make their own decisions on their own. I I don't know how you feel about that. Well, I think it's such a fascinating idea. And one of the things that's brought up, and certainly we talk about it in science fiction all the time about creating God or man is acting as if he is God. And in this case, they even say we've built God and now we're stuck with it. <laughs> yeah. And as you say, maybe you'd rather have that impartiality, that that non-emotional decision-making process. And, and certainly there is something to be said for that. But then, and i just making this number up off the top of my head, you know, 30% of the world's population is probably over a billion people. Yeah. So very drastic measures. Well, I also like that Traveler Season 2 seems to be skipping around to different topics. It's almost episodic in a way, in addition to serialized. So we do have that faction plot. We do have that assassination of the congressman. We do have the power source plot. And each of them are very different. Even had a Groundhog Day episode in there at one point. Right. But what I really like about what they've done with Season 2 is, to a large extent, they've focused on the emotional human aspects of these travelers now that they're in this host body and have assumed their life and how they're coping with that. Because, you know, we've got, for instance, Marcy, who we are initially introduced to as this intellectually challenged young woman. Now we learn at the end of season two that that wasn't quite the case. That's not how she got to be intellectually challenged. But she's been a person that has been a normal young woman. Then because of some experiments that were done by Vincent, she became intellectually challenged. And we've referred to her as Marcy 2.0 then. (laughs) Then her body was taken over by a traveler, Marcy 3.0, because of some brain issues that were really going to lead to her death. She was rebooted marcy 4.0 so she's had a difficult life dealing with all of these things and there's also though the question that grace who's played by jennifer spence who we all know and love from continuum as well she's a great character on the show yes (laughs) yes but there's a question as to whether grace did something a bit more insidious to marcy because there's a whole issue of things that don't seem to be in her memory right and things she left out and it it seems to mainly play into the relationship she has with david and look you, you and i've talked about this many times good science fiction shows while they can't ignore romantic entanglements because that's a natural part of life you certainly can't build your show around it right and travelers certainly does not do that and i think they handle it brilliantly and one of the ways is with her relationship with david who has gone through a lot and i think a lot of what we see in season two is the two of them coping with this relationship and in a large part for for marcy it's it's coping with not only i've assumed this young woman's life but i also don't have all the memories i should have right and so it becomes very important just as it did with grant mclaren in season one and and the whole 
plot line with him and his wife being pregnant in season two, how important are the memories of the host to the continued survival of the traveler? Yeah. And certainly one of the questions is how many of the memories are in there? Right. I mean, do we look at the brain as a computer hard drive that can be overwritten, but that doesn't mean the original data is still not there somewhere. Or at least fragments. Yeah. Or at least fragments. So that's an, an issue that, that we still don't have a concrete answer for, but it certainly is something that they examined in season two. You know, McLaren talked about memories of his wife, and that that's sort of what has led him to, I guess, form this emotional attachment to her. And one of the protocols is you you don't procreate. I forget exactly how it's Protocol worded. Protocol four, yeah. <laughs> but she gets pregnant the one time they do have sex. There's a problem that's detected. Well, don't take a life, don't save a life. What does he do? He goes to the team medical officer, Marcy, says, look, you've got nanites. Do you love the fact that nanites are working their way into virtually <laughs> everything yeah. now and you don't even have to explain them they just do what they need to do <laughs> exactly and you know marcy agrees to help him which surprised me a little bit that that she agreed so readily she loses the baby nearly her own life and then that whole idea that he agrees to consider adoption which is as he says it's not something i even thought about well yeah because in the future there would be no adoption i wouldn't think yeah exactly and i love the whole plot line of the fact that the baby has to be lost has to, as part of a mission because they have to save Catherine's life because she wasn't supposed to historically die in childbirth because she wasn't supposed to be pregnant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's a lot of historical things that come into play where the director has to put things right, even if it's very emotionally painful. In fact, one of my favorite things about the new direction for some of these characters is Philip. Yeah. Where he gets a whole new set of memories an upgrade, they call it. And it's super secret in a movie theater where all these different historians come and get their update. And it includes future knowledge of what's going to happen to his own team, such that he even saves Carly's life at one point. Ah, oh, I love that plot line. <laughs> well, well, yeah. And as you said, he's a historian. And we've known all along that he seems to have all of this information at his disposal. And we, we've wondered... Oh, how is it that he can remember everything? Does he have a book somewhere that we just haven't seen? And, and, and as you said, we see in the movie theater and we learn later in the season that he was trained from birth to do what it is he does. But he now carries a heavy burden because whereas when he came to the 21st, he knew when certain people were going to die. Now he knows when certain people are going to die and they might even be members of his own team and he can't tell anybody he can't tell anybody that he had the update and you know something i brought up back in continuum uh, where are they getting their money remember i used to say yeah. where's, where's kira getting all her clothes where, she's not getting a paycheck and there is no uh section six or whatever it was i can't remember now and she can't just keep robbing the atm machine <laughs> right and here we we know you know philip has a detailed record of the stock market so he certainly knows which stocks to play which numbers to play in the lottery but as they've been back in season two we start seeing that the timeline has been changing and suddenly his knowledge of the future as he says makes him obsolete 
And at that point, we're wondering, well, what's going to happen? Didn't the director foresee this? Boom. Next episode. Upgrade. <laughs> Upgrade. Exactly. <laughs> well, so, that's what's so weird is that the other historians act like some of them have been through it three and four times. So it's like, Philip, how did you not know about this? But it was a great way to take care of it. I thought it was just a genius storytelling device. And back on track with the lottery, back on, you know, although David messes it up by buying the same lottery ticket as Marcy. Right. But, <laughs> right. but then Philip gets into the... Don't take a life. Don't save a life. I mean, does he prevent Carly from killing Jeff? By singing a song. I think he used a loophole there. <laughs> well, I guess. And again, how ironic that she was supposed to die at her boyfriend's hands. And to well, have... I was, I was kind of happy that they didn't give her boyfriend such a blank slate in you know, Jeff was already a detestable guy in, in season one and to ignore that in season two was bugging me. Yeah. So the fact that he returned to his alcoholic ways was refreshing in a way because it was more realistic. But right. yeah, what a tough time for Carly. They all have these emotional uh, problems in their life, which makes it ironic that when they have that ending scene where they're confronting their loved ones, I feel sorry for Philip because all he's got is the the bookie guy, the corrupt uh, <laughs> parole officer. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. He's got... It's got Alex Sadler's son, right? Uh, Ian Tracy. <laughs> Ian Tracy, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, lastly, you mentioned Trevor. And the interesting thing about Trevor is that he is arguably the oldest human being because he is apparently one of the movers and shakers of the Traveler program in the future. And he's had his consciousness placed in more than one host's body so that he is the oldest of his team. He has the lowest uh, number designation. I think he's 0114 or something like that. Unless you count Grace, of course. She's a programmer, but yeah. <laughs> right. But you know, one of the things that I, I found interesting about his character in season two is that one episode where they're on a mission to plant a bomb in this company that's doing seed research that basically hold farmers hostage and they're going to go in and bomb the facility, you know, destroy all their research. And when it appears that it's not going as planned, he agrees to take the bomb in, even though he knows he's not going to have enough time to get out. And I, I don't know about you, but I really expected Trevor to die in that episode. Now, the fact that Philip remotely disarmed the bomb is problematic in a number of other areas, but I guess it goes along with season two, which is that the longer they're there, the more inclined they are to bend the rules to, you know, meet what they see as the right moral ethical thing to do. Well, that's what's so weird is that they're objecting to the faction going off on their own, but they're going off on their own themselves. So yeah, yeah. a big part of this show is morality. And when, when is it right to intervene and when isn't, I think McLaren is kind of on his high horse a lot because of the fact that the faction was talking about taking a billion lives off the face of the earth, whereas they're talking about saving lives when they change things, but still. <laughs> so, so moving into season three, at the end of season two, all of the travelers in our group, McLaren's team, they're forced to make these videos in which they admit the truth about how they got here and who they are. Now, assuming that the average person is skeptical and just thinks it's some sort of a hoax, some sort of a marketing campaign, whatever, doesn't mean that their lives aren't going to be irrevocably changed. So will the season follow the lives of the travelers 
and have them be forced to abandon their loved ones? Are they going to get new missions for the director? I, I don't see how they can stay in their present headquarters. Well, I don't know. I think a big part of it might be showing that there are conspiracy theorists out there about the time travel starting to be taken seriously, but still on the fringe and the uh, new missions might come into play with that. But, but yeah, I think it will probably be part of season three. Well, I mean, I, I think there's no way that Carly will retain custody of her baby. How is McLaren going to retain his FBI job? I don't know. I don't think it's going to go that far, honestly, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, I think the biggest part has to come into play with regard to Vincent (laughs) and his new body. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Anyway, another great show. And it'll be interesting to see what Showcase and Netflix do for season three, assuming it does get renewed, because what's happened the first two seasons, uh, the Canadian audience gets the first 10 or 11 episodes and then Netflix US drops the whole season at once. <laughs> it's really weird, yeah. Because the Canadians are ahead, and then the US gets a chance to see the finale before Canada does. Very weird. <laughs> now, what Canada did this year was they aired 11 and 12 together. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. So, But yeah, some great time travel offerings out there. We were really, I didn't realize it at the time, but when we started podcasting about Continuum, we were right on the cusp of the unfolding of that whole phenomenon. So uh, not just with Canadian sci-fi, but with time travel in particular. So some great offerings out there. And I'm glad we're in this age of such great sci-fi offerings. And, you know, you can dig into the vault sometimes. And that's what we're going to do with our interview segment as we get to one of our most exciting interviews that we've ever had to offer. Got so excited that you notice a teaser episode of this interview showed up in our feed. That was at the request of the Den of Geek editors who wanted to make sure and capitalize on it before the premiere, even though our podcast was after the premiere. But we're very excited to talk with William B. Davis about the X-Files. Now, this discussion happened before the premiere happened, Dave, and some very shocking occurrences in the premiere. I said we'd stay spoiler-free, but what were your general impressions about Cigarette Smoking Man in, in episode one. My gosh. <laughs> well, number one, I'm not a big fan of the voiceover. So I guess that's more of a, a directed at Chris Carter. But yeah, <laughs> I, I don't like the big reveal we get in this episode. But the good thing is, prophetically, Dave asks in this interview about William B. Davis's single writing credit, an episode in season seven called Enemy, which he had dealings with. Scully, and that deals directly with the big reveal in the first episode of season 11. So great that we had that question in there, even though this this interview happened a while ago. So go ahead and then take a listen to our interview with William B. Davis that we had a couple of weeks ago. Now, if you're like us, you may remember William B. Davis from his turn as Elder Alex Sadler on 2012's hit time travel series Continuum on Showcase and Sci-Fi. That was back before time travel was cool. (laughs) But most of us know him as the iconic nameless character on The X-Files, known simply as Cigarette Smoking Man, or CSM. He appears prominently in the trailer for the upcoming Season 11 revival of the series, and we're anxious to talk to him about the upcoming X-Files season and reminisce with him about the classic series. So welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, William Davis. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, well, you know, before we get too far into things, are are we just not supposed to ask how your character survived a direct missile hit in the cave? (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, well, uh, the, the simple answer is with difficulty. Um, <laughs> uh, hours and hours of prosthetics, hours and hours in, in makeup trailers, and, and somehow I got put back together. Whether I had help from alien sources, perhaps, or whether oh. I have some DNA that uh, uh, is not normal in humans, we don't know. There are there are these possibilities, but I think the short answer is it was better for the story if I survived. <laughs> <laughs> and I think everybody is happy that you have survived. Yes, uh, certainly I am. Glad to be back on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, during the early days of Cigarette Smoking Man, he typically communicated non-verbally in that first season and didn't really speak at all. Were you given a lot of freedom on how you played him, how you portrayed him visually as he often silently stood off to the side? Um, I guess I guess so. Um, I didn't get uh, very much specific direction on, um, on how they wanted me to stand or what they wanted me to think or whatever. John Bartley, the DP, uh, the cinematographer, he was quite particular about uh, how I was positioned so that he could light me in the most threatening or menacing way. And uh, I think he has a lot to do with why the character became so interesting to the fans and then which subsequently led to the development of the character further. Yeah, and I guess as often happens in television, your character's role changed to become much more prominent than originally intended. So could you talk about any conversations you may have had with Chris Carter or the writers as that evolution took place? Uh, Remarkably, no. (laughs) There were no such conversations. You would think there (laughs) might have been, but uh, there have been some interesting ones uh, after the fact. Bob Goodwin likes to tell the story of how he was uh, assigned to direct uh, the episode called One Breath, which Morgan and Wong wrote. And uh, they wrote a great big scene for the cigarette smoking man confronted by Mulder. And and Bob said, but, 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 but uh, can Bill Davis act? I mean, nobody <laughs> knew. Uh, I subsequently have chastised him for not looking at my resume to see that I actually had some experience. <laughs> but anyway, he dove in, and then we both dove in, and uh, uh, it's lovely when he tells the story because he was so thrilled with how it went, and he loved to work with me and what I brought to the to the role. And he was pretty much, uh, you know, associate producer with Chris at the time. So um, I mean, that gave, I guess, everybody in in head office, as it were, some confidence that they could go forward and develop this character that the fans were beginning to find so interesting. Well, that's uh, it's interesting you mentioned the, that answer because, of course, in your memoir, <laughs> which really likes to point out some of the behind-the-scenes aspects of the X-Files, which are not as mystical as fans might think, uh, uh, did you enjoy demystifying it a bit in your in your book? I did. I did. Um, uh, I had a lot of fun doing that. Um, it's interesting too, but how, you know, how, how we've all changed over time. Um, you know, sometimes now I regret some, some comments I might've made in the book, uh, uh, about, um, people's attitudes or whatever, because with time and, and experience, we're all, I think working really professionally now and really cooperatively and, um, it's just a, a great pleasure to work with Chris and with 
and with David and Jillian, if I ever get to work with her, which is very, very rare <laughs> to the extent that I do. Uh, it's really quite uh, splendid. Now, you wrote the script for the season seven episode Enemy, which was centered around Cancer Man and Scully, who is not Cigarette Man's biggest fan. I mean, how, how did that come about? Was she a character that you really wanted to write your script about? Well, that was the kind of initial motivation. Uh, here we were, we'd done seven seasons, and I had still never done a scene with Jillian. You know, we had a couple of uh, kind of threatening looks at each other in the pilot, and uh, maybe another one or two somewhere along the way, but we never actually um, had anything to do with each other, really. So I thought it would be fascinating to to confront these two characters in some form or other. And uh, so that was the kind of genesis of that of that storyline. And and um, I love that I'm credited for writing it, and I love that I get the royalties for writing it. But I have to say, it was a it was a team effort. Uh, a lot of input from uh, Frank Spotnitz and uh, a final, uh, quite significant revision by Chris. Well, now that we've got uh, season 11 coming up, we're anxious to see what other relationships might show up for this character so many years later. Are there additional relationships that are sort of elaborated upon that are different yes, in this revival? There, yes, there are. And, and of course, we can't say too, too much at this point. But the relationship with Skinner goes further and becomes more complicated. And Mitch and I have had fun with that. And then... Uh, what was sort of started in season 10, I guess you could call the reboot season 10, um, some kind of uh, connection between uh, CSM and uh, Monica Reyes, that gets developed further. And I'm not quite sure where it's going because episode 10, which I gather we're both going to be in, uh, Annabeth and I, uh, but it's not yet written and I haven't seen the script. So I don't know where that was going. <laughs> anxious to see but uh, yes further relationships will be developed yes okay well speaking about relationships one of the later season mysteries involves the parentage of fox Mulder, with speculation that cigarette smoking man is in fact Mulder's father which would then cloud much of what we think we know of him so just to kind of boil it all down is cigarette smoking man a good guy or a bad guy well, that depends on your perspective. What can I say? Um, uh, I mean, he is, of course, in many respects, the villain of the story. He is the antagonist, and Mulder is the protagonist, uh, at least running a lot. I mean, there are a lot of other facets to the series, but, but there is that ongoing conflict between those two characters. And yet it's complicated by the fact that they are, it would seem, blood-related but there's no reason why blood relations cannot be in conflict, as we know. So uh, I think it's I think it's fairly well established now that he's my illegitimate son, uh, and Spender is my legitimate son. So far as I know, that's pretty well established. The relationship is complicated, stormy, and uh, ever-changing. So it's really hard to pin down. And whether it's a love-hate or whether it's a, just we're two si on two sides of a, of a very deep uh, mythological struggle. Um, and uh, I would like him to be on my side, but he wants to be on his side, and he's an impetuous sort of man. And uh, 
we're constantly in conflict. Yeah, in fact, the uh, the good guy versus bad guy scenario might be a better question about Alex Sadler. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, uh, Alex Sadler, I think, r- really did show that he was ultimately a good guy, I think, or down underneath he wanted to be, or he wished he could be, or he came to be. Um, whether CSM ever has that kind of conversion, I think is perhaps a little less likely. I think he's more hardened. And he's really only maybe a good guy in the sense that to some uh, Marshal Pétain was a good guy uh, in forming the and heading the Vichy government in France and cooperating with the Germans because he believed that was the only way that uh, the French society could survive. Um, he was wrong, uh, but uh, he didn't know that. Uh, CSM believes that he has to align himself with uh, whoever. We're not quite sure who, uh, but certainly some aliens and some other forces in order to save some measure of, of humanity. And he may be wrong, too, but uh, he he's doing what he believes has to be done, and he's ruthless about it. No, that's not the only thing that uh, Alex Adler and CSM have in common. Both X-Files and Continuum were filmed in Vancouver, although Continuum was kind of unapologetically being filmed in Canada. So what did you take away from your experience on Continuum, and what do you enjoy about the Canadian acting scene that some of your earlier colleagues, like your college buddy Donald Sutherland, (laughs) left behind for Hollywood? (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, I mean, it was, I mean, it's, it, it's a small point, really, I suppose. But, you know, we do so much uh, filming of, of, of movies and TV in Vancouver. And there's enormous pressure on the entire acting community to sound American. Um, we have <laughs> classes in American accents and all that stuff. Um, I've never been very good at it all. Well, the only way I really resolve it for me is I try never to say the words house doubt or about because they always sound Canadian when they came out of my mouth. So I just changed the script if I can. Uh, but so Continuum was lovely in that sense because we could sound Canadian. We could talk Canadian. We could talk with our natural voices. Uh, so that was a, that was a great treat. Yeah, the acting, I mean, the Canadian acting community is different from the American acting community in some ways and different from from the British and somewhere in between, I think, because, you know, a lot of American actors, not all, but quite a lot of American actors are so rooted in film and television that they don't really have a theater background or they don't have a broad training background even, but they have developed a way of doing what they do. Uh, whereas uh, a Canadian or British actor has needs more versatility really to survive. And uh, uh, I think uh, we have a greater interest. Ah, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this kind of coming out of my mouth, but it's probably not fair because a lot of American actors do, of course, work in theater and some of them are brilliant. Uh, so, but as a, as a kind of general perspective, uh, I find Canadian actors on the whole, more theater aware. And that has, that has some translation into how we try to work together when we're in a film scene and how we try to work off each other and to be part of an ensemble. 
stuff. But anyway, I, I'm babbling on, and I should be more careful. <laughs> Ask me well, another question. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, it, it's the rare show that produces even one iconic figure, let alone three, as has happened with the X-Files. So I'm wondering, are there any funny stories with fans coming up to you at, when you're out in public? Or, you know, I know you do you know, some convention work, but, you know, anything you care to share? Well, um, it's, it's, it's settled down over the years but, uh, uh, because people have become more used to the show. Um, but, uh, you know, I remember in the early days uh, uh, just being in an elevator and, uh, you know, there's two of us standing in the elevator and this woman's, you know, looking at the front as we always do. Then she turns over and looks at me and she screamed. She was terrified. She found herself in an elevator with the cigarette smoking there. <laughs> And then, of course, when she settled down and realized, of course, I was the actor who played the character, not really the character, then she went and called all her friends, and we all had to have photos and, and autographs. But that kind of, uh, oh, my God, it's him, uh, seems to have settled down quite a bit. People are still often quite excited to meet the actor, but, but the distinction between the character and the actor seems to be more clear over time than maybe it was in the beginning. Well, also, don't you? Uh, has the word spread that you are a noted skeptic, and therefore, not as many fans ask you about alien conspiracies and <laughs> yeah, such? No, that's that's changed because yeah, in the early days, people seemed to assume that you know actors chose what uh, <laughs> things they did according to what they were interested in, and at the A-list level, that may be true. But for, for most of us as working actors, we we do what we get. Thanks very much. I'm glad you've got the part. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I don't remember people coming up to me and wanting to take me on a skywalk to look for uh, UFOs they were expecting, or they would bring me the latest information on Roswell and blah, 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 blah. And finally, I said to one of them, I can't remember, so, you, you know, I don't, I don't actually believe in this stuff. And they were just shocked. <laughs> you don't believe that there's aliens among us? I said, I said no. I said, well, why not? And I said, well, the onus is on you to prove that they're there. It's not for me to prove that they're not. And they said, oh, well, we have. And that stopped me because <laughs> I really didn't know what proof they believed they had had, had um, put forward or discovered or whatever. And so basically I had to find out. Uh, or at least I didn't have to, but I was curious and wanted to find out. And uh, that sort of led me to... Uh, to PSYCOP, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, which is a skeptic group, not just called uh, Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, I think, uh, but who, who've done enormous research into these various paranormal claims, whether it's about aliens or whether it's about dowsing or, or it even kind of connects to uh, um, alternative medicine sometimes, but but examining these various claims and trying to put them under a scientific scrutiny. And, you know, then I learned about Roswell and what really happened at Roswell or what we think really happened uh, and so on. And, and yeah, I started to actually talk at skeptic. I mean, I'd always been a skeptic in one sense because I'm kind of a born and raised atheist with a degree in philosophy. But with regard to these particular issues, uh, I was just not really well informed. But now I'm a lot better informed, and I've had fun talking about it over the years. Well, we certainly have enjoyed talking to you about that and the X-Files today. So thanks so much 
William B. Davis, for joining us and talking to, about the X-Files with us. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Okay. You bet. Bye-bye. Okay. And Dave, that was one of the most enjoyable from the standpoint of just having someone from such a classic sci-fi show, but also William B. Davis was just so forthcoming and had some great stories to tell about his time on the X-Files in the past and in the present. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was a little bit intimidated going into that interview. I mean, I mean <laughs> yeah, yeah. dude is an icon. That's exactly right. So we are so grateful to him. To He just talked to us on his cell phone, I think, in the middle of the day one day. So that was really a lot of fun. And we hope you enjoyed this dive into cerebral time travel and some nostalgia from the X-Files. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media, where we're increasingly talking about the discussion topic with our listeners. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in February, we'll be taking a look at the cyberpunk adaptation of William Gibson's Altered Carbon on Netflix and the parallel world spy thriller counterpart airing on Stars. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we do take suggestions for future discussion topics. Just let us know what you'd like us to talk about on social media or in an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month.